Well, uh, church, last week, uh, my daughter, Emery, and I were watching something on television one evening when our show broke away to commercials. And the first commercial uh, was an endorsement for Senate candidate Cal Cunningham. But interestingly, the commercial had nothing to do with Cal Cunningham. Instead, it had everything to do with his opponent, Tom Tillis. It was about how Tom Tillis had not done what he said he would do and how he had made decisions during his time in office that were in his best interests, not in the best interest of North Carolinians. The next commercial was an endorsement for Senator Tom Tillis. But interestingly, the commercial had nothing to do with Tom Tillis. Instead, it had everything to do with his opponent, Cal Cunningham. It was about how Cal Cunningham has had an affair and that as a result of that infidelity, he's not the type of person that North Carolinians want representing them in Congress. The third commercial was an endorsement for President Donald Trump. But interestingly, the commercial had nothing to do with President Donald Trump. Instead, it had everything to do with his opponent, Joe Biden. It was about how Joe Biden was a radical who was seeking to make America unsafe. The fourth commercial was an endorsement for presidential candidate Joe Biden. (laughs) And I bet you can guess where this is going. (laughs) Because interestingly, the commercial had nothing to do with Joe Biden. Instead, it had everything to do with his opponent, Donald Trump. It was about how Donald Trump was unfit for office and how he had endangered American lives by downplaying the virus for his own political expediency. The fifth and the sixth commercials were an exact repeat of the first and second Cal Cunningham and Tom Tillis commercials. And then our show returned. This is a true story. (laughs) One commercial break, six political ads, two of them exact repeats, and all of them saying nothing about the candidate for which the commercial was for, but instead highlighting negative information about the candidate's opponent. Even Emory picked up on the absurdity of this. And after I experienced this commercial break, my first reaction was, it's going to be a long three weeks until the election. Hunker down. My second reaction was, what an absolute waste of money. And maybe that's another topic for another day. But my third reaction was that I think they're actually hitting on something that may be important here, but they're missing the most crucial part. And that's what we're going to talk about today. This morning, we're continuing our series entitled The Politics of the Kingdom, where we're considering some of the values and and policies, if you will, of, of the kingdom of God and considering how they should come to bear on us as citizens of the kingdom of heaven who are living in the kingdoms of this world. How should the values of the kingdom of God come to bear on our lives, our actions, our decisions, even our political engagement as we live in the kingdom of man? And let me just take a a brief moment just to remind you here that that throughout this whole series, I am not trying to prescribe any specific course of action for you through these sermons, through this series. I'm not seeking to pull you to the right or draw you to the left. I'm not seeking to recommend any candidate or party or platform as the faithful Christian option. I don't believe that exists. And I honestly think that if someone suggests that it does, that they've gotten things really backwards and that they're allowing their politics to shape and form their faith rather than allowing their faith to shape and form their engagement in the political realm. Tim Keller, 
uh, wrote an article several years ago that ran in the New York Times. It was entitled, How Do Christians Fit in a Two-Party System? And his answer was simply that we don't. (laughs) We simply don't fit there. There is no home for a Christian in our political current, our current political system. And that shouldn't surprise us because we are described in the scriptures as foreigners and aliens in this world. As Christians, our citizenship is first and foremost in heaven and we await a savior from there. That is our political home. As children of God, we are always looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And until that kingdom comes, until that city comes down out of heaven, until we are at home with the Lord, we will all be aliens and foreigners here on earth. Yet, this is where we live. And we have the current political system that we have. And and so the question that I am seeking to ask and I'm wanting you to wrestle with and to come to convictions about in your life is, how does our faith come to bear on this aspect of our life? Do, and if so, how do the values and politics of the kingdom of God come to bear on the kingdom of this world? We may come to vastly different opinions and outcomes with those questions in the end. But what I want us to do is to be disciples of Jesus, who allow our faith to shape and form our opinions about the world, rather than the other way around. And so this morning, as we're a week and a half out from electing new leaders for our government, I want us to consider the topic of leadership. What does the kingdom of God have to say about leadership? And what I want to highlight for you this morning is that in the kingdom of God, when it comes to leadership, character matters. The kingdom of God is a kingdom where character matters. Character, as, as defined by the Oxford Dictionary, is the mental and moral qualities that are distinctive to an individual. Put another way, and and put in a way that's a little bit easier to understand, I believe, it's the idea that how a person behaves is what he or she is. The famous basketball coach from UCLA, John Wooden, he has famously said that the true test of a person's character is what they do when no one is watching. It's the idea that what you do when you're in private, but when you can't get caught, that that tells you who you really are. <clears throat> Referencing that wooden quote, there was a, an article from Forbes magazine several years ago which argued that character is actually what you do when everyone is watching. When the pressure is on and, and the heat is turned up, how do you respond? What comes out of you when you're in the pressure cooker that that tells you who you really are? And both of these quotes, they express the idea that our character is about who we are on the inside. Are our insides consistent with what we portray on the outside? But when the pressure is on and everyone is watching, when the pressure is off and no one is watching, is there a consistency to your inner being? Are you who you say you are, but what you portray yourself as? That is the measure of your character and of your true self. And what we see when we look at the scriptures is that throughout the history of God's people, both when they were a monarchy as the nation of Israel, and when they were a non-nation state, an apolitical missional movement of the church, that in both of those scenarios, in both of those kind of states as God's people, that the character of the leaders mattered. 
We see this in the Old Testament in a, in a profound way. Throughout the book of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, which tell the stories of the nations of Israel and Judah, there are long sections of the scriptures which recount the lives of king after king after kings in these nations. And, and one of the consistent descriptions that we are given of each successive ruler is in regards to their character. Did they do what was right in the sight of the Lord, or did they do wrong? Were their actions benevolent, or were they destructive? Was the fruit of their lives, the fruit that their lives produced, was it good or was it evil? And unfortunately, far more often than not, the repeated description of the character and the actions of the kings of Israel and Judah was that they did evil in the sight of the Lord. They did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord their God. But sometimes it was even that they did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before them. Occasionally there was a king that was acknowledged for having done right in the eyes of the Lord, but usually it was the opposite. And this poor character and the bad fruit that it produced in the lives of the leaders of Israel and Judah, it eventually caused both of the nations to be sent into exile. It harmed the people of God. In the nations of Israel and Judah, the character of the leader mattered. In the New Testament church, the character of a leader matters also. Here we're no longer dealing with successive kings inheriting the rulership over the nations, but with appointed leaders of the many scattered small faith communities of the church. And what the New Testament teaching about leadership in the church makes very clear is that there is a standard of character which needs to be met to even be considered for leadership in the church. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1, they both lay out the qualifications for being a leader in the church. They list the character traits that are essential to even being considered for such a role. They require that a leader in the church be above reproach, faithful and committed in their marriage if they have one, hospitable, that they be people who manage their household well, that they are well thought of by outsiders, that they are dignified. They need to be sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, a lover of good, upright, disciplined people. And there are not only positive character traits that are required, but there are also negative character traits that are prohibited. That to be a leader in the church, you cannot be a drunkard. You cannot be a violent person. You cannot be quarrelsome or a lover of money. You cannot be double-tongued or greedy for dishonest gain. You cannot be arrogant or quick-tempered. So before you can become a leader in the church as an overseer or an elder or a deacon, you must exhibit this type of character. And both the church communities and the leadership candidates were instructed to take this very seriously. Paul instructs the churches not to be hasty in the laying on of hands. Don't be quick to put people into positions of leadership, he's saying. They should be examined and patiently and thoroughly considered to verify that these requirements are met before someone is, is made a leader. And he warns the potential leader that while this is a noble thing to desire, that they should take the position and the requirements very seriously because leaders will ultimately be held to a higher standard in these regards than everyone else in the church. And consequences for failing these ways are different for leaders. And the, and the reason that the church and the candidate are to take this so seriously is because like in the Old Testament Israel, 
If someone with bad character gets into a position of leadership within the church, their influence can have an incredibly detrimental effect on the people under their charge. Being easily led astray by false teaching and through the modeling of a sinful life. In Israel and in the church, the character of the leaders mattered. It mattered to God and it mattered to the well-being and the flourishing of his people. In the kingdom of God, the character of a leader matters. And what I found so interesting in, in the political ads that I saw the other day with my daughter is that, is that they all seem to grasp that idea at some level. right? Each of the four political ads for these two most prominent national races affecting our state in this cycle were all advertisements that were impugning the character of their opponent. Not one of them was about public policy. They were all about personal character. It's an acknowledgement, by these candidates at least, that in these races, as in the kingdom of God, the character of a leader matters. But where I think the challenge for us often comes is in regards to the question of what determines whether someone's character is good or bad. For I'm sure if you asked each of these candidates in the commercials, they would affirm the goodness of their own character and would suggest that the, that the character that their character qualifies them for leadership, even as they question and challenge the character of their opponent. So who gets to decide, right? When we ask that question, we quickly begin to realize is that in order to make any judgments about character, there must be a standard by which to judge. So what is the standard? Who gets to judge? Is it up to each individual? Is there a commonly accepted human standard for one's character? If so, what legislates it? So the problem with the ways of the world is that without a standard and without a judge to legislate that standard, this is impossible. But for Christians who are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, there is a standard by which we measure one's character. It is the law of God. And there is a judge who legislates that standard. It is God himself. And in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel, we have a fascinating and I think really challenging look into how that works. In these books are the stories of Saul, the first king of Israel, and David, the second king of Israel. As a very brief summary, uh, uh, Saul, he looked the part of a king. He was rich. He was from a prominent family. He was the tallest and most handsome man in Israel. And in the early part of his reign, God used him to do good among the people. He won victories over many of his enemies, the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Edomites and the Philistines. The scriptures tell us that Saul did valiantly, and he struck down his enemies and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now, there were two instances early on where Saul made mistakes. On one occasion, he offered an an unauthorized sacrifice before the Lord, He wasn't a priest, and so he wasn't supposed to do that. On another occasion, he kept some of the plunder from one of the battles rather than committing it all to destruction as he had been instructed by God. These were seemingly small, fairly insignificant indiscretions. But on the whole, Saul looked like a pretty good king. David, on the other hand, was the least likely of kings. He was the youngest son of Jesse and a shepherd boy. He was small in stature, and and no one, not even the prophet who was sent to anoint him as king, would have ever picked him as a leader. David, likewise, won many battles as a king, but he also had several indiscretions in his life. 
He committed adultery with the wife of one of his soldiers. And then he had that soldier killed in order to cover up his infidelity. And these were major transgressions. On the whole, David didn't look like a very good king. Yet in the end, God rejected Saul as king and proclaimed David to be such a good king that someone from his family line would sit on the throne of Israel forever. Why? What was the difference between the two? I imagine Saul could have made a pretty convincing negative political campaign ad against David as a candidate for remaining the king of Israel. If character matters for leaders in the kingdom of God, why was Saul rejected and David accepted when David seems to make the greater transgression? This is one of the profound realities and graces of the kingdom of God. It's that in God's kingdom... Each of us is worth far more than the worst thing that we've ever done. And that what really matters in the kingdom of God is not the mistakes that we've made. We're all human beings who are born with a sin nature. We are all going to make huge mistakes in our lives. We are all going to sin in extravagant ways. Before we are transformed by the Spirit of God, we can't help but to sin. And even after our heart is transformed, we're still covered in the flesh and are constantly tempted towards sin. See, what matters in the kingdom of God is not the mistakes that we've made, but how we respond to those mistakes when we're confronted with the law of God. And this is where the story of Saul and David flips. For when Saul was confronted with his wrongdoing, he deflected and he defended He blamed others for what he did wrong, and he sought to validate his own actions. In the end, he was more concerned with how he looked in the people's eyes than how he looked in God's eyes. He wanted the approval of man more than he wanted the approval of God. And he was rejected as a leader over God's people because of it. David, on the other hand, when confronted with his wrongdoing, was was broken by it. He confessed his sins. He wrote Psalm 51 as an expression of his deep repentance for his wrongdoing. He desired the approval of God above all things, and he didn't care if he was humiliated in man's eyes because of it. He cast himself onto the mercy of God and was forgiven and accepted because of it. This is what made David a man after God's heart. In the kingdom of God, character is never about our perfect performance. Because we know that our our perfect performance is found only in Jesus. But we trust Him as the only one who ever perfectly met the standard of God's law. We trust Him as the only one who always obeyed the Father's will. He is the one who did everything right. And we trust in Him to make right of our wrongs, bearing our transgression upon Himself on the cross, paying the penalty for our sins so that we can be forgiven and set free. Our perfect performance is not dependent upon us. It is found in Jesus. But our character, as defined in the kingdom of God, is marked by contrition, our contrition and our our repentance, by taking responsibility for our mistakes and by asking God for help with them when, when confronted with our shortcomings. This is why Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For our Christian character is ultimately about humility and contrition and the acknowledgement of our poverty of spirit and our need for and dependence upon God. That is what makes us a man or a woman after God's heart. 
In the kingdom of God, the character of a leader matters. It matters to God and it matters to the well-being and to the flourishing of his people. The challenge for us as Christians is to discern how does that truth about the kingdom of God translate into the kingdoms of the world? And, And this isn't an easy question to answer. And faithful Christians will disagree about the application of this. Some would say that it absolutely translates, and and we should seek to have as many faithful Christians in public office as we possibly can, advocating for policies that reflect the values of the kingdom of God, that this is what is best for the flourishing of all people. Others, though, would argue that the governments of this world are so far from and so insignificant to the kingdom of God that we shouldn't expect leaders to live by the same standards as Christians, and that it ultimately doesn't matter whether they do or not for their governing. The government of a country has no bearing on the life and the work and the ministry and the mission of the church, and so ultimately it doesn't really matter. I had a conversation this week with a close friend of mine who works in ministry, and he, he ultimately holds a very different position on this than I do. But we sat at a table together, And we discussed and we reasoned from the scriptures and we considered all kinds of different implications and ideas from the scriptures as to why the character of a public official matters or why it doesn't. It was a civil, loving, respectful, faithful, biblically informed conversation that was edifying in both directions, challenging in both directions. And even though we ultimately disagreed, that that conversation, that, that engagement, that kind of thinking is, is really the goal of this entire series. I'm not trying to answer these questions for you. That is the work of you living out your faith, of you considering how the values of your faith should come to bear on the decisions that you make in your life. What I am trying to challenge you to do is to make sure that it is your faith that is informing how you think about the world rather than allowing the values of this world to inform how you think about your faith. And church, if we would do that, then in every way, we'll be seeking to live our lives to the glory of God and to the good of His people in this world. May we do so. Amen.